Welcome to Selfish Security Chat Chat, episode 250 for the 11th of August, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski, here this week with Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Glad to see you made it safely back from your multi-conference Vegas tour. Yeah, no no offense to any of our listeners who happen to live in Las Vegas, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how you do it. And after a, a week with the humidity from the remains of Hurricane Earl combined with 44 degrees desert heat, uh, let's just say I'm happy to be home. The Hoover Dam uh, plus electricity plus air conditioning equals comparative comfort. Isn't that how it's done? Yeah, things are always a bit unusual when there's um, over you know twenty to thirty thousand hackers in town in Las Vegas. So it, I have to say I was more than a little distracted from the heat. <laughs> I would say, you I mean, no amount of air conditioning can deal with that. Uh, well, we'll talk a little bit about uh, DefCon and Black Hat and some of our stories this week. But one that, that kind of topped my list that interested me was the return. Or I shouldn't say return because I suppose it's been going on for a while, but. Uh, return in the news, at least, of LNK-based malware. And, you know, I think we've we first heard a lot about link malware or shortcut malware when Stuxnet came out, because that was one of the zero days that was used to spread Stuxnet on removable media devices. And back then, I had a bit of a, made a bit of a fuss about the hidden extension thing and all this. And I, I saw you just recently did a, a, a write-up showing that ransomware and other types of malware are using this technique uh, to fool users once again. The bad news is that shortcut files are very hard to notice as shortcut files, except for that little hooked arrow that appears over the icon. And even if you turn on show extensions in Windows, shortcut icons on your desktop don't show the full name, the actual name of the shortcut file. It shows the name of the shortcut that's embedded in the link file itself. And, of course, there isn't a generic LNK icon. The icon, again, is determined by what the crook puts in the file in the first place. So just when we got used to the idea of show extensions on Windows, the .js or the .docm or whatever it is will show up and you'll be less likely to be tricked. Then they change their game again and come up with the one true special Windows master of disguise file, the shortcut. So I guess in this case, it appears Microsoft copied Unix a little too well. I mean, it's just, it's very similar. You know, the shortcut is sort of a copy of the the soft link that we often use on Linux and Unix systems. And of course, the only way to tell something is a soft link typically is that you notice a little S in the flags. So they're pretty darn well hidden. Yes, I guess the real problem here is the fact that the link file has a name that ends .lnk in a regular directory listing. But when it's displayed graphically, the name and the icon are actually, and indeed, the command that will run, and, of course, the command line options that are sent to that command, which could be a command script sent to a script interpreter like PowerShell or the command prompt. All of those things are actually inside the link file, so the crook gets to choose them. You really, really have to watch out for that little arrow on the icon, because that's about the only visual symbol you get that what you're looking at is not what you're going to get. Yeah, and if, if you go to Naked Security and you search shortcuts, it'll be one of the first articles, uh, beware of ransomware hiding in shortcuts. You can see some great screenshots of that you put in the article. Uh, moving along, at DEF CON, one of the more interesting things that um, had an academic bent for once, which is not normal for DEF CON behavior, 
was the Cyber Grand Challenge. There was a $2 million prize for uh, a sort of AI-based red team, blue team exercise, I guess you might call it. Uh, people use these supercomputers to try to automatically find and fix bugs and earn points sort of the same way we would in a, a capture the flag style event. Well, I say academic because in my view, it's not ready yet, but it's kind of one of these shoot for the moon kind of situations. You know, the the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration in the U.S. as part of the Department of Defense kind of put up this money to to challenge people to try to find ways to automate bug discovery and patching, knowing that we're kind of, you know, in this immature state. But perhaps if we can incent researchers to figure out how to do this uh, uh, to, to win these challenges, we can advance the state of the art and maybe down the road uh, be able to much more programmatically go about finding, discovering vulnerabilities and fixing them more quickly to protect us. So I, I found that quite an interesting challenge. Now, Chester, you were there and I wasn't. So I was just watching on thinking, hey, this looks cool, but it does, it does seem a little synthetic. But my understanding is that in some cases, these automated bug finders went after bugs that we as humans know only too well, including, for example, Conficker, which was what, back in 2008. It may not sound very exciting that, yes, they were able to find those now ancient bugs that we're used to finding. But if I'm not wrong, some of these automated processes, they found those bugs, but in completely different ways... Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and the one you point out, uh, MS08067, the Conficker vulnerability, uh, the the winner actually discovered that one, but exploited it different than the way we had known it to be exploited previously. And one of the other challengers, I believe it was the third place uh, challenger, found a flaw in a patched bug. So it was something that we thought was fixed. It actually found a different way of exploiting the same programmatic error and even though we thought we fixed it because uh, we fixed it against the human attacker we actually hadn't fixed it necessarily complete and properly and it was still able to exploit that so there's some very interesting i think future stuff that can occur there and, and the comparison that the gentleman from darpa used was talking a bit about how you know first we didn't believe computers could beat a human grand champion at chess and then computers surpassed the grand champions but now chess competitions are being won by humans coaching computers to beat one another. And that I think that's kind of maybe where they're hoping to get down the line. You know, five to 10 years from now, maybe these computers will become better bug hunters than we are. But what we'd really like to see is humans augment the machines, guide them in the right directions, and, uh, you know, kind of team up to create super bug hunting and squashing machines uh, that that uh, certainly could result in a, a lot safer code than we're seeing today. So it, I think it's something that was fun. It'll be interesting to watch it develop. And even though there was a $2 million prize, I believe the competitor that won spent about $40 million building their system. So clearly the glory is not just for the money. <laughs> wow. What do they do with the $2 million? <laughs> do they Do they put it into next year's prize fund or something, given that it's such a small percentage? They didn't disclose that, but the interesting part was the computer was the first computer to ever win a black badge at DEF CON, which is a lifetime entry into the conference. So that's the next puzzle that the team's currently trying to figure out, which is how can a computer attend the conference every year and what is forever for a computer? We, we often like to talk about uh, criminals when they get caught just to give us some hope that what we do has some impact on the world. And there were a couple great stories that I just couldn't pass up this week, beginning with a story from the UK, a Carter crook known as Sir King Cash. 
It's not funny. Why am I laughing? (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny because the court has ordered him, in addition to serving seven years in prison, to hand over 554,000 pounds uh, sterling. And that's a lot of money. And, and, and it's kind of interesting going, but if you don't get around to paying your, your 550,000 pound fine, um, you have an alternative. You have three months to pay us, or we'll just add five more years to your sentence. <laughs> what I was perhaps rather cruelly thinking is, I wonder how many of the victims who are supposed to get their money back, and you know, say they're going to get... 50 quid each back i wonder how many of them would say you know what i'll forego the money and add my 15 minutes on to his jail time it was an interesting scam by the way he would he would buy and it shows some of the economics in the cyber underground that he made uh more than a million quid basically buying stuff with stolen credit cards from essentially a, an online store that was a front. He set up this store selling, I think, DJing equipment and music and stuff like that. So he had this sort of legit-looking web store, but he didn't have any legit customers. He was just using it to launder money. And the balance was that he spent about £80,000 with um, uh, some ru- criminals in Russia to buy the credit card numbers and was able to turn it into more than a million pounds. You don't need to be some kind of super hacker or IT expert to be a cyber criminal. You just have to be willing to steal other people's money and prepared to use predominantly computers and web servers to do it. Well, which which leads to the final story about one of these, um, what, what are now getting the fancy name of uh, business email compromise scams, which I've been hearing lots and lots more about recently in fact, I was just doing an event here in Vancouver a few weeks ago, and somebody came up uh, the next day after the event and forwarded me an email going, hey, here's these guys trying to get my CISO to wire transfer 130,000 Canadian to this bank account in Spain. And actually, I was really grateful for him to share the email because they actually communicated with the crook back and forth and kind of provided some screenshots that I can use in presentations to make an example of these types of attacks. But in this case, the Nigerian guy involved uh, seems to have been using uh, a, a keystroke logger and some other malware tools and accidentally infected his own computer to disclose his own identity. Yes, the bite a bit, I think you'd say. Once again, we shouldn't laugh. It's a good reminder, actually, if you want to uh, get into security research and become a reverse engineer and learn how to muck around with malware, you have to be careful you know, just running a VM or just having a spare computer that you don't care about isn't really enough. And yes, you're right, he, he ended up dobbing himself in. Um, it's also a very, very good reminder. A lot of people, when they hear about this for the first time, they go, who's going to believe some random email from some outside person they've never heard of claiming to be the CFO saying, we need a check cut? And the point is, it isn't an outside person spoofing the email address it's an outside person logged in as the real official usually sending email from their account absolutely and and that's that's the most important thing i mean to remember that uh it's just con artists using a new medium which makes it harder to tell their con artists uh, many of us you know we get these phone calls with fake tech support stuff and we go, oh the accent's a bit funny you know there were reasons i suspected it when it's coming from a legitimate email box, um, it's hard, you know, and, and we really have to have processes in place that say, how do we verify identities for everyone who answers the telephone at our companies, whether it's tech support or reception, uh, the people in finance and human resources who process resumes and invoices that are incoming, 
uh, and wire transfers that are going out. There are particular people in our organizations that are at higher risk and uh, procedures in place to uh, protect against these types of fraud are really important these days. And I guess, Chester, the other thing is if if you've got access to somebody's own email stream, you don't actually have to be a fantastic linguist or a great writer yourself. You simply use copy and paste from previous emails. So not only do your emails actually come from the right person, they'll look like they came from the right person. So indeed, uh, it does become very hard to tell them apart. And with that note, I will conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat episode 250. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Duck, for helping us get to that 250 mark. It's a lot of podcasts, and you've been uh, a great help in accomplishing not just the uh, co-hosting, but editing of so many of them. So thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. And uh, here's to number 500. <laughs> All right. So as always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sofus.com for free antivirus and web filtering for your friends and family. Go to home.sofus.com. And for all of our podcasts, you can go to iTunes. You can pick it up on TuneIn, the Google Play Store, or anywhere else great podcasts are found, or at soundcloud.com slash sofa security. And until next time, stay secure. <laughs>